So by now you've figured out that uh, I am covering for Jimmy today. Unless you read the bulletin early, you probably saw that as well. Uh, Jimmy, in recent weeks, has been walking us through the book of 1 Samuel and how the message of the book relates to us today. Uh, Jimmy has done a wonderful job drawing contemporary applications to the Old Testament writings. Today, I am going to speak also from the Old Testament scriptures as there are many lessons that we can learn from these writings. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4, for everything that was written in past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. I'm going to take a look at the Old Testament book following First and Second Samuel, the book of Kings. When Jimmy spoke from the book of First Samuel chapter 13, uh, there was a war taking place. And today as I speak from First Kings chapter 20, guess what? There's another war taking place. With special emphasis on what was just read into our hearing, verse number 40 of 1 Kings chapter 20, why your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. I have chosen for the subject losing spiritual focus in a busy world. Losing spiritual focus in a busy world. The book of 1 Kings chapter 20 deals with the war between Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, and King Ahab of Israel. King Ahab of Israel is victorious in this war. Allow me to share some of the background information leading up to the war and it's a lot, so bear with me. But I need to do it because without this background, the parable at the end of the chapter uh, will be difficult to understand. So let's take a quick safari, somewhat, through 1 Kings chapter 20. Beginning at verse 1, Now Benedict, king of Aram, mustered his entire army, accompanied by 32 kings and their horses and chariots. He went up to besiege Samaria and attack it. He sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, saying, this is what Ben-Hadad says, your silver and your gold are mine, and the best of your wives and your children are mine. Verse number five, the messengers came again and said, this is what Ben-Hadad said, I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your place and the house of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. Verse 7, the king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, see how this man is looking for trouble. When he sent for his wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I did not refuse him. The elders and the people all answered, don't listen to him. 
or agree to his demands. Verse 10. Then Benadad sent another messenger to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered, tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Benadad heard this message while he and the kings were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. Verse 13, meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this, asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the 232 junior officers under the provincial commanders. Then he assembled the rest of Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon, and while Benadad and the 32 kings aligned with him were in their tents getting drunk. The junior officers under the provincial command went out first. Verse 19, the junior officers under the provisional command marched out of the city with the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Aramees fled with the Israelites in pursuit, but Benadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of the horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Aramees. Verse 23. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, their gods are the gods of the hill. This is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this, remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely... We will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. Verse 28, the man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Aramees think the Lord is God of the hills and not God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 29, for seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day, the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted 100,000 casualties on the Aramees' foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them, and Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in the inner room. His officials said to him, Look, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Benadad says, Please let us live. The king answered, Is he still alive? Yes, they said. Go and get him. The king said, When Benadad came out, Ahab had him come to his chariot. I will return the city 
of my fathers, that my fathers took from your fathers, Benadad offered, you may set up your own market area in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. You see, here's the situation. There were two battles fought between Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, and King Ahab of Israel. Prior to these battles taking place, God sent his prophet and communicated with Ahab, king of Israel, that you will be victorious. In verse 13 of 1 Kings chapter 20, he said, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am your Lord. And then again for the second battle in verse 28, the prophet comes again and says, this is what the Lord says. Because the Aramedes think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valley, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am Lord. You see, God had ordained that King Abinadad was supposed to have been destroyed with Syria. However, King Ahab made a covenant with And since he made this covenant <clears throat> with the king of Syria and allowed him to live, it is this parable that was read earlier that explains or indicates that this will be the consequences of King Ahab for disobeying God's will. The parable was spoken by the prophet to King Ahab. The prophet was seeking to rebuke the king for his leniency in dealing with Ben-Hadad, whom he had overcome in battle. Allow me to take this Old Testament parable and give it a present-day application. The Bible says again in verse 39 of chapter 20 of 1 Kings, your servant went out into the thick of the battle, and someone came to him with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. Imagine for a moment that you meet this soldier immediately after he has been placed in charge of his important captive. He walks with a purpose. He knows the very task he has been given. And he is very serious about doing it. He takes his position before the cell of his prisoner, as it were. And he watches with all diligence. The next day, you pass his way again. But with great shock, the soldier is no longer on guard. Another has taken his place. You look around for the important prisoner, 
But he was nowhere there, no longer there, nowhere to be found. Upon inquiry, you find that he had escaped. In his place, bowed down with shame and dressed in chains, is a man who yesterday stood as the guard. The question is asked, could it be? Is it possible? Is this really the man who just yesterday was the God? How did this happen? Was he surprised and overcome? Did his fellow soldiers allow a strong company of men to break through their lines and overpower him, taking his prisoner? Did a strong hand strike him from behind in the dark? How is it that his prisoner escaped? Then this man, not being able to hold his head up, not being able to look you in the eye, answered your question. No, my prisoner did not escape because I was overpowered. Nor was I hit from behind in the darkness of the night. But he escaped because I lost my focus. Hear me, church. He escaped because I lost my focus. I failed to keep the important things, the important things. I lost my focus on spiritual matters, and I just got caught up in the business of the world, caught up by busyness, too busy doing what, you might ask. What task could have found more importance than saving your own honor. He is a soldier. He's in the Lord's army, supported by the Lord, backed by the Lord, blessed by the Lord. What task could have been more important than his mission? Oh, no task in particular, he contemplated. I was just caught up in the business of the world. This is his confession. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. As a result, this man was sentenced to death. He had not committed an aggressive crime. He had not stolen another person's property. He had not committed aggravated assault. In fact, he had, had not done anything that was illegal. He had not done anything that was unrighteous. But yet, he was sentenced to death. You see, he was not punished for what he had done. He's being punished, church, for what he failed to do. That kind of sin, let me say to all of us, is just as real and just as dangerous as any aggressive sin that one can imagine. For the Bible says in the book of James chapter 4 and verse number 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, to them it is sin. If I just simply think, as I see evidence of this in the world today, that so many people are thinking that if I do no wrong and I don't hurt anybody, 
if I just stay out of jail, then I'm all right in the sight of God. How ridiculous. And I'm not standing critical of anybody, but think about this. How ridiculous is it for anybody to fix their mind on the paradigm that one can be a Christian because of what he or she does not do instead of what he or she does? How is that possible? Are you following me? The problem with the man guarding the prisoner was that he simply failed to do his duty, but his failure cost him his life. Now let's consider a few possibilities uh, for his failure. First, he did not fail because of ignorance. He understood perfectly well what he was to do. He also understood the great importance of his duty. He knew it was a life and death situation. For the Bible says in verse 39, God this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life. But yet he fell. And he fell at his own ruin. There are many things on this side of life that we may not know. And many things that we may not understand. But it seems especially to me that in this case, we may not have all the answers to every question or all the answers to every situation, but perhaps with us, our greatest need is not necessarily for more knowledge, but rather to live up to what we already know and to not get caught up in the busyness of this world. We may still have a process in our lives where we're finding our way, and we're finding our way as Christians. We may not exactly know what special duty the Lord wants us to do. We may not know every step that we ought to take. We are not perfect. However, what we do know is that there is an absolute difference between wrong and right, and we ought to be on the side of right and not on the side of wrong. We may also know that there is a place where we as Christians ought to help and not hinder. We should also know there is a place where we should lift up and not tear down. If we believe, if we believe we do the things we ought to do, and if we study the Word of God, be obedient to the Word, He will direct our path. When we seek His will, when we seek His direction, when we seek to stand for Him, when we do that out of a sincere heart and a commitment to the Lord, he will direct our path. But we've got to stand up. We've got to live as a Christian. Living as a Christian is not complicated. We should do what we can to understand God's will, understand God's word, understand the teaching of Jesus, and live our lives accordingly. Amen? That's what we are called to do as a church, as the family of God. In the midst of this chaotic world, a lot of stuff is going on in the world today. And a lot of stuff I don't quite understand. For a country that talks about it, God we trust. But we as Christians, 
have a responsibility in the midst of the challenges on this side of life to stand for Jesus. Amen. Second, this man did not fail for lack of ability. If he could have said he was overpowered, if he could have told his superiors that many came and took the prisoner away and I could not stop them, but I tried. Maybe he would have received the pardon. However, he had no scars to show. He had not made a fight. Therefore, he could not make such a claim. You see, when we try and we fail, that's worth something, church. We may not succeed at everything we set out to do, but when we try and we fail, I believe the Lord gives us credit for trying, gives us credit for the effort, because our hearts are right and we're trying to move in the right direction. And the move, when we move purposely and try to do what we are called to do as Christians, I believe that we will be blessed and the Lord will surely bless our efforts. Let's do what we know to do, what we can to do, and what we're called to do. And thirdly, he did not fail because of idleness. He was not, he did not fail because he was lazy. The man did not sit around doing nothing. He was a worker. He didn't fail from ignorance, not from inability, not from idleness. Then why did he fail? These were his words about himself. While your servant, that is the guard, was busy here and there, the man disappeared. Church, as Christians, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10. We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, according to Matthew 5, 13 and 14. Church, we are Christians, and we have a responsibility to keep our focus on spiritual matters, no matter how busy the world is, and how many things are thrown at us in this world, and how many things changes through time. We are still the same Christians, united in the blood of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We must not allow the business of the world to hinder us and cause it to overcome our spiritual focus. I am reminded of the Apostle Paul to the letter at Corinth, the church there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse number 6 through number 10. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, make his light shine in our hearts, to give us light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, that is human beings, earthen vessels, to show that this all-surpassing power from God, it is from God this power and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted 
but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also be revealed in our body. Church, this was Paul and the apostles. Then, this is you and I, all of us now. As Christians today, this is us. We're called to be the light of the world. In the midst of all of the challenges that we see in this side of life, we've got to maintain our spiritual focus. We cannot allow the business of the world and the changing times of the world. What was okay and good some time ago is now considered something totally different. When at one time it was all accepted. But that is the world and that's Satan at work. And I plead to us today to remember our relationship with Jesus. Remember who we are called to be and do what we can to share and, and communicate the love of Christ in this world in which we live. Keep our focus on spiritual things. The message is yours. Apply it to your own hearts. If you're not a Christian, be one today by faith in Jesus Christ. Go down in the watery grave of baptism to rise and walk in newness of life. And just before I close, I want to appeal one more time to our hearts. The psalmist writes in the 139th division of the book of Psalms, verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. My prayer for me, my prayer for us, is that all of us ask God to search our hearts. God, you know me. God, you made me. God, you know where I stand. You know what I stand in need of. You know what I need to do on your behalf in this world. Search my heart, God. Know my heart. And where I'm anxious and where I'm concerned and where I have complexities in my life that's interfering with what I need to do on your, in your place, Lord, I want you to identify those thoughts to me. Help me see those thoughts. And I want you to look at my heart, God. And if you see anything that's offensive in me, bring it to my attention and lead me out of that situation and lead me into your everlasting, Lord. We are human beings. We are not perfect. We are infallible. But we serve a perfect God connected to the Holy Spirit. Father, everybody in this building, I'm asking a special blessing on all of us. We're endeavoring to understand your word, God. We're endeavoring to do your will. Search our hearts. Guide us. Give us what we stand in need of that we may fulfill your purpose on this side of life. The message is yours. If you're subject to the master's invitation, why don't you come now while together we stand.